Hello and welcome. My name is Shannon Dobbs, and this is my podcast. And I have Yanelise Mercado with me as my guest and also my uh, mentor in podcasting, since I've never done this before. <laughs> Hello. Hi. And so what we're going to be talking about uh, is kind of our larger conversation is going to be about regenerative capitalism and about what we can do with business processes and business structures to be able to uh, create a give and take with the community. And instead of having extractive processes where we're, where we're pulling resources out of the ground and pulling resources out of the community, uh, how to have a collaborative mission and a, and a collaborative capability that will allow us to do what we want to do with business while at the same time giving back to the community and at the same time uh, creating positive impact at, at the larger level. Um, and uh, I guess we should talk about what we're doing right now. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Michelle, and I uh, started a nonprofit organization about three years ago called On Common Ground. And it is a 501c3 uh, organization that is dedicated to uh, addressing the need in our community around food access. And uh, this was kind of an ongoing discussion that we had had for a number of years about, you know, how can we make an impact in our community? We were successful business owners. Uh, we both had b backgrounds in government. I was uh, in the Army for about 11 years, and Michelle was in uh, the state of Nevada government and city of Sparks for about 15 years. And so we had a lot of uh, resources at our disposal, but we needed to figure out, okay, so how do we focus these in, an, in a direction that's going to benefit our community? And so we started uh, looking around and we were, we were operating our businesses in downtown Reno for a number of years. And one of the things that we noticed and, and really kept coming up over and over again was our customers and our employees were dealing with a, a difficulty accessing nutritious, healthy food in the communities. And, and a lot of it was based on transportation issues. Yeah, and this is all based in Reno right here. The, like your guys' uh, organization is in, off in Reno. It is. It's a, it's a Nevada-founded 501c3. Uh, we are based in Reno, Sparks, so like the larger northern Nevada, Washoe County territory. But uh, our, our primary mission right now is really effectuating change in Reno uh, for one reason, and that is because uh, the Reno-Sparks community has developed their, their bus system. So their public transportation system is on a hub-and-spoke model, and so the entire system relies on downtown Reno as the hub. And so if you if, if you can create a change in the downtown Reno area that provides an increased access to food, you're really impacting all of the spokes as well. So if somebody's living up in Sun Valley and they're and they're working down in Collin Ranch, they have to go through downtown Reno in order to get home at night. So if instead of just transferring, you know, to their next bus, they can walk a block or two over to a local grocery store and be able to get food and then get back on their bus, it's going to make it a lot easier to be able to coordinate these things, you know, and juggle disabilities and kids and all of the other barriers that people run into. That's something that I find super convenient, especially as someone for me who was born in Las Vegas, Nevada, mm -hmm. and we didn't really have, or at least I felt like we didn't really have that access of what you guys have of the, of your guys's bus system or transportation system. And then right next to where you guys are having your guys's uh, place where you guys will be handing out. Yeah. And, and it's really fortunate that we have this system that, that way because it allows us to really start looking at how can we do one single solution that's going to impact a large, uh, you know, a large component of the city. Uh, you know, Las Vegas has food desert situations just like Reno does. As a matter of fact, the, the, across the United States, every single city in America is dealing with the food desert crisis. And the reason for that is, is essentially it's a capitalistic model. Uh, the the for-profit businesses have a uh, basically they have analytic programs that they look at when they're looking at okay I'm going to create a new store so let's say I'm ABC Corporation and I'm going to create a, a, a grocery store I'm going to look at the areas I'm going to say well where am I going to get a return on my on my investment how can I get my money back from investing in and some of these stores are in the multiple millions of dollars to put in you know some of them are like forty forty five thousand square feet they're huge. And the trend over the last 40 years in the United States has been to move these stores into the outlying areas because you got cheaper rents and it's, it's easier to cash flow uh, the, the, the grocery stores. The problem with that is it's pulling the resources out of the central communities where people live and, and especially in the low-income communities. When these businesses do their analytic programs, they look at these low-income communities and say, well, I can't get a cash flow here. I can't return my investment. Uh, if I if I put money into here, I'm not going to get it back over over you know a, a reasonable period of time, and because of the way our business structures are created, the shareholders have control over 
what these businesses do. And if the businesses make a choice for anything other than profitability of the shareholders, the shareholders are going to say, no, you can't do that. They could even sue the board of directors. They could fire them. You know, they could basically stop the company from doing anything that's not going to maximize profitability. So that's, in my opinion, at least, that's the way uh, th- that these food deserts have been created. That's why they're growing. And that's the, the number one reason why we're having major access issues all the way across the U.S. Yeah. And one thing that I'm curious is, is where is Nevada ranked in this? I, I know Northern Nevada is, I think it's pretty high in that, if I'm not mistaken. We're actually pretty reasonable. If you look at the, the statistics across the U.S. <laughs> when we say reasonable. I say reasonable, comparatively. <laughs> so <laughs> if you look across the U.S., the, the average uh, insecurity uh, component is about 15% of the population. So we're at or slightly below that. And it's so crazy because 15% it doesn't seem like it's a large number. But once you really break down how many people are in that, mm-hmm. it's it's a large amount. Well, it's also a larger number when you look at, uh, chi- at, at children. So if you look at just the kids in the population, people under 18 years old, it, it rises significantly. It goes up to 21%. And that's down from 26. So we are doing better in our community. But a lot of the changes that we're putting into place are really kind of incremental. And they're not really impacting the large populations like downtown Reno. And you're also not incorporating the college students. So, you know, in downtown Reno, you've got about 60,000 residents, uh, at least 5,000 motels that don't have kitchens, which adds to another layer of barriers to the situation. But then you've also got another 23,000 university students that are also living in this food desert area. And so if you add that up, you know, that's a lot of people. And, and Reno's only 400, I think 450,000 for the whole valley. Is it really? Yeah. So, so you're, you're, you're close to 500,000 for the whole valley. But if you look at 15% of that, we're talking almost 100,000 people. Wow. And, and that's a huge portion of our community. And if you, if you look at uh, the percentage of kids that are food insecure in our community, that's, that's 21%. That's a big number, one in five. Yeah. You know, university students is also one in five. Yeah, especially me being a university student here as well. It's, uh, I, I can see it. And luckily, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but I know uh, University of Nevada Reno does this thing where uh, I forgot what the what the program itself is called, but they have this segment where I think like they do it three times within the semester where they provide food for for college students, like free food for college students, like pretty much like like, you know, handing out uh, mm-hmm. bread and fruits and vegetables and stuff like that. I don't remember what it's called. I know they've got Wolfpack oh, provisions. Pack, pack provisions. Pack provisions. There yeah. You go. yeah. So that's an amazing program. It's, it's part of the food pantry system. So basically you've got... Uh, Loosely, feedingamerica.org is the kind of umbrella organization. It's a nonprofit organization that that works to provide food access. And it it basically takes end-of-life food from the grocery stores and from other sources. And it it feeds it down through its system to the regional food banks. And then the food banks distribute it out through a number, a large number of pantries throughout the system. So Pack Provisions is one of the is one of the pantries that receives these foods. Uh, so a lot of the foods, most of the foods, I would say, if not all of the foods at Pack Provision is shelf stable products. So you've got, you know, kind of your chips, you've got your, you know, kind of whatever you can get your hands on. And the system is is basically kind of end of life food. It's the stuff that's that's not sold uh, through the system. And then you've got some fruits and vegetables that go into some programs but don't go into others. Oh, okay. And I. Not by any cha- by any means an expert in the food pantry system at all. <laughs> this is just uh, based on conversations and discussions that I've had with members of the food bank, with people that work over there. Yeah, I mean, if anything, I mean, not, I feel like not a lot of people are even aware of that to begin with. Oh, yeah. If you're a university student and you're struggling for food, please reach out to the Pack Provision System. Uh, they're right inside the Joe Crowley Student Union. They're up on the, I want to say, third floor. Uh, it's, it's right in the back where the uh, student um, uh, leadership is. Mm. Uh, the student government. The and, ASUN? Yeah, ASUN. And then right back in the corner, you've got the pack provisions is one of the rooms in there. Yeah. And they're me, great. Yeah, me being a senior here already. I've been I've been here for uh, two years, or about to be two years, and I literally discovered that earlier this semester. And I only discovered it because of the fact that I was going to do a documentary on food insecurity. And mm-hmm. then when we were doing our research, we discovered that. And we're like, what? <laughs> I know, right? That's like... And, and this is a problem that we're dealing with as a society is there are programs in place and there are resources available in the community, but a lot of people have a very difficult time figuring out what those are because our communications are lacking. Um, a lot of people in the, in the wider community 
are dealing with challenges like uh, poor eyesight, uh, lack of availability of, of you know prescription eyewear. Uh, you know, some people don't have teeth. I mean, it, it it seems obvious like you need teeth to chew, but a lot of people that are living on the street or a lot of le- uh, people that are living in in low income areas don't have dental care, and so you end up dealing with the fallout of that situation. Is like apparently these are optional bones that you have to pay extra to support, yeah. <laughs> and and so these and, and so people are really having a difficulty even if you do get food through the pantry system or through the food banks, a, a lot of the food is, is you can't eat it. And so, so people are really dealing with a lot of these barriers and challenges that a lot of people just don't really think about. Yeah. So what do you feel like is a good, I guess, what do you feel like would be a good way of maybe filling in that gap? Well, the, the way we need to fill in the gap is to provide access. That, that is the number one and the only thing that we need to deal with in order to fight these food desert situations is we have to figure out a way to put access to nutritious, healthy groceries into the food desert areas. And up until now, what, what's happened is we've, we've pretty much relied on the for-profit industry to do these things. But because of the way the for-profit industry is structured, we as a community and as a society and as a country relying on the for-profit industry to to provide adequate access to everybody, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because they're, they're not going to do it. They can't do it. You know, mm-hmm. they can't physically responsibly do that. And, and, and because their priorities are to their shareholders and not to the populace, it, it's not really their job, you know? So it sucks. <laughs> well, it, it does suck. But the, the thing is, and, and, and in America, especially, we've got this thing where, where we have a real problem with the government intervention situation. So if the government comes down and says, hey, we're going to have a government run uh, grocery store, you know, a lot of people really have a problem with that because it kind of goes against our narrative of who we are and, and in our, in our freedoms and that kind of thing. So what we need to do is we need to have a third way to, uh, to, to create these solutions. And what we've done with On Common Ground is really just create a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It's a business, just like any other business. But the difference is that we've basically pledged we're not going to make a profit off it. At the end of the day, none of this is going into my pocket. And, and that actually opens up a lot of doors and opportunities because it, it, it allows us to create a business model that's based on, on sustainability rather than profitability. And that's – I can't overestimate how huge that difference is because – if we're not worried about feeding our families on this and our only focus is on creating a sustainable model, then we can go, we, we, it gives us a lot of freedom to be able to go in and kind of monkey with the system and kind of, and kind of tweak things and make things different from how they would have to be if they were a for-profit model. So for instance, um, you know, we can get donated rents. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that seems like an obvious situation, but you know, the store that we're in the process of building down on 4th Street right now is inside a, a space that was donated to us by a business. You, know, mm-hmm. you get the, 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 the building there. They've got underutilized space over in the corner, and it happens to be commercial real estate that is on the ground floor, so it's perfect for a retail grocery store. And they said, hey, here's 900 square feet. See what you can do with it. So they're creating this incubator capability, and that's allowing us to, uh, uh, to, to start building this store. Then you've got the equipment that, that we need. You, you have to have racking. You have to have shelving. You have to have refrigeration equipment. You have to have a, a point-of-sale system. You've got to have a safe. You know, you've got to have little things like, you know, these, these are the, the mechanisms that you have to have in order to run a retail business. Yeah. Well, uh, because we're a nonprofit organization, we were able to receive a donation of all of the fixtures, racking, refrigeration equipment, the safe. The point-of-sale system was donated to us. Our, our credit card processor, First Data, it's a large, one of the largest uh, credit card processing companies in the world. And they actually donated the equipment that we're going to be using to sell uh, the, the groceries to us. And they sent it over to us. It's sitting in my closet waiting to, to, for the store to open. Awesome. <laughs> so that's, that's the type of thing that we can really look at. Is, and, and that gives us the, the capability for the community to come together around a common cause. And that's not something you can do in the, in, in the for-profit industry because – you know, by its very nature, it's a, it's about kind of maximizing market share. It's about, you know, kind of getting, kind of getting the biggest piece of the pie that you can, because that's how business works. Yeah. And the idea of even being able to uh, create such a, like, it seems as if you and Michelle, your wife, managed to, to close that gap and being able to find people who were able to support your guys' organization, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And I, I'm curious to see how exactly did you guys even manage to do that, though? Well, it all starts with a strong model. You know, when I'm sitting here talking to you about it, th- this is multiple years of us researching. We did focus groups. We did community engagements meetings. We brought the community together. And the first thing we did was 
ask everybody, what's the problem? Like, what are your barriers to getting nutritious food access? What are the challenges? What are you, what, what are you dealing with that we can possibly make a difference in? And so we, the answers that we got overwhelmingly revolved around uh, barriers to transportation. So, you know, getting to the food, uh, the, the top three uh, uh, responses that we got in the community, in the, in the focus groups that we conducted, which, by the way, we conducted them uh, with the help of a master's in public health student here at university. Oh, nice. Uh, who crafted it in a way so that so our focus groups are actually publishable because of the nice. way that we that we put that together. And that's which is awesome, because one of the things that we're trying to do is not just to create a solution, but also to to document that solution so that once we get to the point where we've got this successful model, we can share it with other communities and other organizations around the country so that we can really start to tackle on a national level the food desert crisis, because this is this is something that's a really big deal. You know, if it, whether you're coming from the perspective of food access or whether you're coming from the perspective of nutrition, um, you know, 86% of all healthcare costs in the United States, and this is according to the CDC website, 86% of all healthcare costs in the United States are related to preventable food-related diseases. Wow. So, so if you look at hypertension and heart disease and you look at uh, diabetes, you know, type 2 diabetes 40 years ago was completely unknown in kids. You know, kids under 12, they, they, they'd never seen that before. And now that all of a sudden, you know, move fast forward to 2019 and you've got a huge percentage of kids are contracting type 2 diabetes. And, and you know, I'm not going to get into the weeds about why those situations exist, but a lot of it is because the food that is accessible in low-income communities is not great food by and large. Uh, you know, packaged, processed shelf-stabilized, microwavable, you know, all of these different things. Like you've got raw ingredients that are going into people's bodies that are not healthy, you know, and they're not good for you and they're causing major crises. And down the road, it's causing obesity and it's causing hypertension. It's causing all of these situations that's putting a burden on our entire society. Yeah. So it's not just the people in these communities that are impacted. It's really everybody. Yeah. You know, I always, what I always found so extremely crazy is the fact that if you want to be, live a healthy life, it, it's so expensive. Like mm -hmm. just being able to actually consume healthy food is extremely expensive. You can easily go to like a fast food restaurant and pay $3 for something really fatty and that will probably destroy your heart. And then, but you, if you really want to get yourself some nutritious food, it's like you really need to have that money. That's kind of a false narrative though. Is it? Yeah. So if, if you look at it, um, yeah, if you go to a restaurant, a lot of times if you order the salad like a salad or something like that <laughs> it's going to cost more than if you order the burger and mm. and that is you know it's kind of a kind of a market thing but that's at the restaurant that's that's really kind of restricted to when somebody else is making your food for you and a lot of times it has to do with more expensive ingredients you know this and that sometimes it's just perception you know they're they're going to you know businesses are going to charge what the market will bear and people who are more health conscious they're going to be looking towards foods that are okay maybe there's not as much of salads available in the community. And so then you've got to deal with scarcity issues. So if there's not a whole lot of places that offer a good salad, then the, then the, the people that do offer a salad, they can jack the price up a little bit, get more profitability off of it simply because it's not available everywhere. Mm. But if you look at the other side of the coin, which is really uh, uh, the opportunity for people to make their own food at home, mm. you know, then you start looking at a different metric. So I don't know if you've ever shopped at the bulk food section of any of the grocery stores. Bulk, I don't even know that was a section, bulk food. Okay, so here's here's the dirty hidden secret <laughs> of, <laughs> of all grocery markets. So you've got, uh, you know, kind of your, your produce section and then you've got your miles upon miles of, of shelving and everything like that with all the packages and the brand wars and everything that's going on in that. But some stores offer a section where you can just purchase raw ingredients by the pound, you know, by weight. Yeah, okay. And so you can go in and if you need flour, you buy flour and it's just flour. It's not branded flour. It's not so-and-so's special flour. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's white flour, it's brown flour, it's, it's, you know, whole wheat flour, whatever it is that you need. Same thing with beans, same thing with spices. And the cool thing about the bulk food section is that uh, if you're coming in with dietary restrictions... Uh, if you're coming in with cultural uh, issues, like let's say you're you're Muslim or let's say you're you're Jewish or let's say you're coming from a Latina community and you've got particular things that you grew up with and you've got flavors that, that you appreciate and that you like, those are going to be the directions that you're going to automatically want to go towards. Mm -hmm. And and the problem with that, if you're if you're dealing with a homogeneous homogenous, I don't even know how to say that word. If you're dealing with a, <laughs> if you're dealing with a community that's kind of, you know, all together and everybody's working with stuff, you've got a lot of choices and a lot of options, but at the same time, you're dealing with a little landmine if you've got restrictions. And, and a lot of times the medical restrictions are really, really come into play. Um, 
most doctors that are dealing with, like if somebody, if a, somebody comes in and talks to a doctor and says, I've, I've got hypertension, which means high blood pressure, uh, they're going to say, well, you should probably reduce or eliminate your salt content as much as possible because that's going to lower your, your blood pressure. It's going to make you healthier. But if you look at, at what's available in society, by and large, just about everything's got salt in it. And if you go to restaurants, a lot of times they'll plow extra salt in it because it adds flavor to the food. Yeah. So that delicious feeling that you get, like, why can't I make this at home? Well, it's because they're plowing salt and butter and a lot of other stuff that's not necessarily you know, beneficial to you into the food. So the cool thing about the bulk food aisle is that if you know how to cook, you can go get your own raw ingredients and you can cook your own food. And it's dirt cheap. <laughs> Yeah. It is absolutely cheap. I'll tell you what, you, you can buy a pound of beans and you can add it to some fresh vegetables and you can cook it into a stew and you can make it for way less than you can buy the same thing at a store or, you know, at a, at a, at a restaurant anywhere in town. Yeah. The problem is that, that by and large as a community and as a society, we've gone away from that model and we've kind of lost the ability or the understanding of how to cook. You know, you don't see a whole lot of home ec classes in schools anymore. Uh, you, you don't see a lot of, you know, you see a lot of focus on kind of brand, you know, again, it's the brand thing, you know, yeah. the, and, and there's a vested interest in, hey, you got to, you got to buy this pre-prepared meal. Yeah. And, and if you buy the pre-prepared meal, of course you're paying, you know, a multiple of what you would pay for it at home, but you don't have to worry about it. You can just stick it in the microwave or you can stick it in the oven and then you just eat it. Yeah. yeah. I also feel like there's also a problem with like, you know, not everybody has access to kitchens. Even, for mm -hmm. example, when we were talking about how food insecurity, a lot of it, it tends to be targeted, for example, like we said, college students. Yeah. And a lot of those college students sometimes tend to be in dorms. Dorms don't really have kitchens. Yeah. And there's a corollary, too. So the, the, the kids, uh, I shouldn't say kids, but the college students, the young adults that are yeah. <laughs> dealing with the dorm situation, uh, are, there's a huge corollary in downtown Reno specifically because there's uh, because of the uh, 4th Street used to be Highway 40. And then yeah. they, they built the Highway 80 uh, and, and turned, you know, kind of created the interstate system. But before that, they had all of these motel rooms that were created. And so uh, by, by city estimate, there's over 5,000 motel rooms in the downtown area, most of which don't have kitchens or even kitchenettes. Most of them uh, are, just have a microwave and kind of a little bar fridge. That's so Wild. And so it's, it's a huge situation. So if it, a lot of these are kind of weekly or monthly residences now. They're not motels anymore. They're, they're full, permanent full-time residences. But you've got people living there and they don't have the capabilities of, of cooking food in those locations. And in some situations, the landlords are actually telling the tenants that they're not allowed to cook in there because of fire code. What? Yeah. And I, I, we, we heard about that and we heard about from a bunch of different people. And we actually went to the fire department and confirmed and asked them, was like, you know, is there any fire code that's restricting people from cooking in these locations? And they said, absolutely not. You know, so, so now we're working with the fire department to get education and to kind of get some, some information out to the public to say, hey, listen, you know, you can cook in here with a plug-in implement. Well, you know, back in the day, there weren't a whole lot of plug-in implements available. Mm -hmm. You know, you had your hot plates, which is, you know, that's, that's kind of old tech, but it's also, you know, potentially dangerous. And then you had slow cookers, which are great, but a lot of people don't really understand how to use a slow cooker. Yeah. So these are, these are awesome pieces of equipment because basically you can turn it, 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 it what it does is it gives you two settings, it gives you a low setting and a high setting. And the low setting sets to about 200 degrees and the high setting sets to about 250 degrees, depending on the brand. And then all you got to do is you chop up a bunch of vegetables. You can throw some beans. You can throw some rice in there. You can throw whatever the recipe calls for into the slow cooker. You turn it on and you let it sit there for between four and 10 hours and you let it slow cook. Well, that's a great program for some people, but then some people are dealing with like three jobs and juggling kids or they're, you know, running around. So, so there's challenges that make a slow cooker kind of a difficult uh, thing to deal with sometimes. You know, you don't want to necessarily leave a plug-in cook pot on all day while you're going to work. But yeah. sometimes, you know, you can do that. Mm. Now we've got this new tech that just came out on the market a few years ago called an Instapot. Ooh. And I got to tell you, I'm really excited about this tech. And I'm going to be pushing this as, as a game changer, you know, to the community. Because now you've got a situation where you've got a, a, a single implement that allows you to saute food. So you can, you can fry it, yeah. you know, uh, uh, skillet style fry it. Gotcha. You can slow cook it. You can also pressurize it and use it as a pressure cooker. So now something that used to take 10 hours, I can get done in a half hour. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wait, how much does this cost though? It's a little more than a slow cooker, but it's really not that bad. I can get one online. If you, if you go to uh, Amazon, you can purchase one for about 60 bucks. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, that's not bad at all. And, and especially because it's a one-time purchase and it's empowering you and giving you all these capabilities, this lets you create a meal inside one pot. So you can literally build it in the Instapot, you close it up, you cook it, and then you serve it. 
And, nice. and so you don't have a whole lot of implements and you don't have four or five pots running around. So it actually saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of energy while at the same time allowing you to use raw ingredients to be able to save a lot of money. Yeah. You know what's one thing that I've always loved about uh, On Common Ground when I when I discovered this uh, your guys' organization? Um, the, the idea of that you guys not only just help provide food, but you guys also help create classes for people to understand like, hey, Maybe you might be limited with ingredients, but you'll we're gonna give you some classes or some tips or or things like this for you to understand like, hey, you can live life with even this like limited access to food. absolutely. it's it's incredibly imperative that people understand how to use the tools and the resources that we're providing. When we put this store into place, if if we just opened the store and said, okay, go to town. People, are, the, the majority of people that we're trying to impact, especially SNAP eligible participants, people who are in the extreme low income category, they get federal assistance that really need the help more than, you know, kind of, you know, the rest of society. Like if I, I've got a car, you mm. know, if, if, if I get hungry, if I want to get my groceries, I can go anywhere in town. I am not limited by anything. Get a you know? burrito. I'm doing all right. You know, I'm, yeah. and, and I'm not afraid to say, you know, I'm not one of the people, I'm not one of the people I'm targeting. But at the same time, I've gone through a process over the last five, six years where I've had to really kind of understand and rediscover and, and learn a lot of how to use healthy food items in order to be able to effectuate my own changes. You know, I used to be almost 300 pounds. What? Seriously. No way. Yeah, I was 286 uh, five years ago. What? Yeah. And I'm I'm still a big guy. I'm I'm, I'm hovering between 220 and 230. But a lot of that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting back to my fighting weight from when I was in the army. And so I'm really proud of the the progress that Michelle and I have made personally in our lives, in in, in creating these changes and in, in being able to to you know kind of move towards healthier food options. And you know we can do you know if we wanted to we could do the you know kind of really expensive hey you know send the meal to me and that kind of thing. You know there's there's a lot of programs that you could say hey you know I. I I could have somebody make my meals for me. I could even get a private chef if I want to. But the thing is, I'm in the minority. You know, there's not a whole lot of people that can access those types of, of programs or those types, you know, I mean, financially, it's just out of reach of most people in our community. And so what we need is we need a solution that works for everybody. We need a solution that, that provides a passive access. And by, when I say passive, I mean, if you have to drive to the outskirts of the city, that's active movement. And so one of the things, you know, I mean, as far as, impact on the community. You're talking about, uh, you know, the, the gas usage, you're talking about CO2 emissions, you're talking about, you know, obviously transportation, all of those things that go into that. Mm-hmm. You're also talking about a waste of time. You know, you're spending 15, 20 minutes getting to the outskirts of the city. If you don't have transportation, those numbers, you know, jump up a lot. So you might take you two or three hours or more to as a round trip just to get groceries. And then if you're, again, if you're dealing with the bus system, there's a limited amount of food that you can carry. Even if you've got a cart to be able to carry it along, yeah. a lot of times the bus drivers force people to, um, to take everything out of their cart and put it on the seat next to them. And they have to fold up the cart and get it out of the way because it's mm. in, in the access point. So you're, you're dealing with a lot of small logistics challenges that most people just don't think about. Yeah. But it, it eats up a lot of the energy and a lot of the, the, the focus of people that are really struggling to try and make ends eat meat already. So so by creating a passive solution, by, by putting a grocery store close to the hub of the bus situation, that provides a solution not just for the you know 90,000 or so people that are living in downtown, including the students, but also to everybody that's living up in the 14 different food deserts all the way around the community. So that that does a number of things. And, and, and one of the components of the, of the model that we created for the grocery store is we're going to be largely package free. So it, it's kind of obvious if you think about the bulk bin section. Wait, of, so of what exactly store. does that mean though? So, okay. Packaging waste. Uh, I, I don't know if you've heard, you know, on the news there, it's, it's, it's a really big deal. Packaging waste is a huge amount of the waste that goes, ends up in the landfills. It ends up in our oceans. It ends up, you know, basically it's choking the planet. You know, there's a major problem with just packaging waste. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Got you. Okay. And, and in our community, it, but, but across the United States, we have a very low recycling rate. Uh, so, you know, some countries are up in the 90s, even, even some in the high 90s, like 98, 99% recycling rate for the, you know, when, when they're using packaging, it goes back into the system. It gets used through four or five, six times. In the U.S., we are not that good at it. And, and we're down in the 30s. Oh, gosh. So we're, I, I think the last number I heard was like 37% was, was national. And, and, and that means that a lot of this packaging is ending up in our landfills and, and it's just not, you know, it's, and it's going to the system and it's harming the community and it's, it's, it's really contributing to that extractive model yeah. of, of, of capitalism. And so 
if you if you effectuate change at the grocery level and if you reduce the amount of packaging that's in the store, then that's reduces the amount that's going to get used in the community, the amount that's going to get thrown on the street, the amount that's going to get, you know, not recycled and everything like that. So it just, it, it really creates a net reduction. And so, so we're going to be passively helping the community by creating a store and, and really crafting it around that bulk model. Nice. Okay. What the other thing that it does is bulk food is by nature, typically a shelf stable dry product, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't have like, if, if you look at fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, they have a very short shelf life. And, you know, they, and, and in typical grocery stores, a lot of, you know, they, they kind of overpack the shelves. And so a lot of those fruits and vegetables end up going out the back of the store and ending up in the landfill or they get, you know, pig farms or someplace, they go, they go someplace else besides human consumption. And oh. so that's, that's part of the food waste situation. And in the United States, over 40% of all the food that we produce in the U S goes to waste. Wow. And that's, and, and if you look at produce specifically, it's over 50%. Oof. So we've got to have, we've got to figure out models to be able to minimize that, that situation and try and, you know, kind of push back against these, these issues. And so what we've done with On Common Ground Store is we've created a model that is largely package free. The majority of it is going to be shelf stable product. So, uh, you know, product that you don't have to worry about coming out of the back of the shelf. So if it doesn't sell this week or if it doesn't sell next week, it's still okay. You know, awesome. bean, beans last forever. <laughs> Rice lasts forever. I've had a, I've had a bag of 50 pound bag of beans in my, in my garage for probably the last six months. And I just keep pulling out of it and keep making food yeah. and, and it's not going to go bad. And it doesn't really have an expiration date. Not really. Yeah. And, and, and when we talk about expiration dates, one of the really interesting kind of, and, and again, this is a marketing thing, but expiration dates largely other than uh, baby food in the United States are not regulated by the government. Oh, Oh, oh! <laughs> <laughs> which means that basically when, when a company puts an expiration date or puts a best buy or a use buy or, you know, these types of dates, yeah. typically they're just, uh, they're, they're really aiming towards kind of like the best flavor. It's like, okay, this is, this is the best time to eat it before it starts going a little bit less flavorful or a little bit less, yeah. you know, kind of snackable or, or, you know, maybe less crisp if it's a chip or something like that. Gotcha. But it's not, it's not bad for you. Gotcha. You know, so you really, you, 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 and that's a misnomer and that's something that's, that's really, you know, there's a lot of organizations that are really trying to get an education component and really kind of educate people. Hey, listen, you know, these, these sell by dates aren't, I mean, specifically the ones that say sell by, yeah. that's not even aimed towards the consumer. That's aimed towards the store. And it's a suggestion when they were going to turn over their inventory. Oh. So when people look at that and say, oh, my eggs are, are two days past sell by date. Crap. I got to throw them away. Yeah. No, you don't. <laughs> that's literally me all the time. Yeah. Oh, that's so good to know now. Yeah, there's actually a, a, a program called Adam Ruins Everything. And about two years ago, yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, I think it's on Comedy Central. But uh, he, he put up a clip about Adam Ruins sell-by dates. And it's, it's a great little five-minute exercise. And, and if, you, if you can find it on YouTube, it's Adam, like Adam Ruins sell-by dates. And you can, you can get a little education on, on, on how this whole thing kind of came about and what you can do and like what the actual methods that you can use to be able to determine if your food is still good. Yeah. There was one time I had a carton of eggs and it had the sell-by date where it pretty much showed that it was expired. I didn't throw them away. Mm-hmm. What I did is I did the floating test. That's awesome. Not very many people know about the floating test. Do you want to tell me what it is? Yeah. So (laughs) I did it thinking, okay, so I grabbed a bowl. It's pretty much you you have a bowl or anything with water, and then you put your egg in there. If your egg happens to float, I think it's gone bad because there's gas in there, Mm -hmm. which means it's pretty much rottening. But if it manages to sink in, you're still good. But there's also another thing where if it happens to be a little lifted, uh, there's like there's like three components to it. Oh, okay. So it's like if it's just fully down, it's good. If it's a little lifted, you start seeing kind of floating floating up. It's still pretty good, but you should probably eat it. Like use it first. N- use it now. Right on. And then if you just see a float, that's bad. Get rid don't, of it. Don't use it. And I did that, but I was still paranoid. I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't remember if I ate it, but I think I just threw it away. I can't. <laughs> that's awesome. No, it's great that you're using it, and and that's the thing is is you know as a nonprofit organization. One of our biggest goals is to just, you know, if, if we find out something that's really, okay, this is going to be useful, we need to make sure that we disseminate it. And that's why our organization's website, ocgreno.org, has all, a lot of this information. So we put up blogs that, and matter of fact, some of the blogs were actually created by university students. We put up recipes when we find them is like, hey, here's a really healthy way to do this. You know, sometimes one of the recipes that I created um, a couple of years ago is a, um, is a, is a no-fry uh, refried beans. Oh, 
So you take uh, and you basically just take beans and um, uh, onions and serrano peppers. You know, I like a little heat. Oh yeah. And you put some spices in there, and I can send you a copy of the recipe. Definitely. And uh, and you cook it in a slow cooker. And then after you're done cooking it, you put it into a food processor and blend it. And so it gets that consistency of refried beans, but it's all just basically boiled vegetables. Wow. And so it's super healthy. doesn't have any oil in it. doesn't have any fats in it. And it's just pure vegetable goodness. And what I do is I take that and, and, I, and I cook a large amount of that at once. You know, it's called batch cooking. When you, when, you, when you create a bunch of it, like way more than you can eat in a meal. Oh. <laughs> and then you, you fill some containers with it and yeah. then you can freeze it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's re- and I can freeze it for like six months. Wow. So if you've got a little bit of, you know, and some of these people that are living in, in like the motels and the weeklies and stuff like that, again, they've got these tiny little bar fridges that are like, you know, just little mini, you know, kind of for, for you know, single serving kind of yeah. fridges. There's not a whole lot of freezing capability in there. So, you know, I encourage people to, hey, you know, if you're going to be working towards eating healthier, you need to have a storage capacity. And, and what they do is they have over some of these stores, these drop freezers that they're not that expensive. You can get one for like 100, 150 bucks and you can fill that freezer up with food that you're creating. And then anytime you're, you know, kind of busy (laughs) or you've got to get to work and you don't have time to cook a meal, that's cool. You just pull some out of the freezer, let it defrost. You've got it in your fridge and you just pull it out and you can add it to some tortillas. You can add it to, you know, just whatever you want. So these batch cooking techniques are a huge component of what we're trying to, to teach people how to do is how to, you know, time manage and how to, um, you know, plan out your meals and how to, you know, really kind of be smart about this. Because if you're, if you're constantly in a, in a state of chaos and you're constantly thinking about what do I need right now? Yeah. What do I need right now? I'm hungry. I need something. You're going to snack. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to eat whatever's easily available, whatever's convenient. And a lot of times that's going to end up being your processed foods. So if you have the opportunity to think ahead a little bit and you have an opportunity to plan out these meals, then you can start making these smarter choices and you can start really thinking about, okay, how can I make a meal and have it, you know, last an entire week? Or how can I have something for lunch that's going to be a go-to? Or how can I preserve these vegetables so that they're going to, you know, last a long time? So these are kind of questions that you, that you have to have in your, in your household. It's like, and it's all kind of focused and based on, on what you're into and what, you know, what tastes good to you. But there's certain basics that we can all kind of agree on and, and that we can go to. And some of these tools are incredibly powerful. Nice. So, so what's, the, what's the next step then, you know? What's well, the next move? The, uh, like I said, the, next, the, the absolutely critical po- component in this community right now is to get the store open, get it up and running, and, and really provide that access for people. Uh, we've already got an educational component. We've had a, a partnership with SNAP Educational Program. This, the SNAP is uh, used to be called Food Stamps. Yeah. So, so the federal government uh, program for providing food for low-income people and, and kind of helping them make ends meet. They have an educational program called SNAP Ed. Mm-hmm. And for the last three years, On Common Ground has been a recipient of a SNAP-Ed grant that has been designed to provide increased education for the community. And so the, the, the whole point of what we're doing is to create the access and then create the tools and the resources and the education to be able to use that food efficiently and effectively to be able to create a healthier lifestyle. Nice. Now, once we get that done, or even, you know, really kind of at the same time, we're also working hard to try and share our message and and, and basically just let everybody know that, hey, we've got a a model here that for a grocery store that will create positive cash flow in a low-income area. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about kind of the components of the grocery. And one of the things that we found out when we were asking our questions is we talked to a bunch of grocery store owners, we talked to a bunch of government officials and everything like that. And, and, And you've got this narrative that is commonly understood to be the narrative. And that is that the grocery store industry operates on a 3% profit margin. What exactly does that mean? Okay, so from a business perspective, uh, if you're creating a business, you've got income, which is your revenue, and then you've got expenses. And your cost of goods sold is your COGS model. That's how much it costs you to get the things that you're selling into and out of the store. So if I'm paying a dollar for a bag of beans. I love to pick on beans, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But if I'm paying a dollar for a pound of beans and then I turn around and I sell it for $2 to the customer, the cost of goods is a dollar and my profit margin is is at that point 100%. So you're doubling the money. But the the problem in in the grocery industry is you don't have just one layer of markup. You've got your grower needs to make a profit. They've got to feed their families. And then they typically send the food over to a a regional processing center, which is essentially a really large commercial kitchen. 
Okay. And and it's large scale, you know, equipment and, and basically they can do a lot of food at once. And and the commercial kitchen, the processing plant, they're going to uh, turn it into whatever, you know, the final product is. So if you're growing potatoes and you want to make potato chips, then it goes through a processing center, it gets turned into chips, it gets bagged, it gets labeled, all that other stuff. Yeah. And then from there, it gets sent over to what's called an aggregator. And aggregators are these huge uh, logistics businesses that they're only... They're, they're, they're basically their job is to take it from one area is take to take food from one area and then distribute it everywhere. Okay. You know, wh- whether it's nationally, whether it's globally, like the aggregators, basically they're in charge of, of moving it around the country and around the world. Gotcha. Uh, and then once the aggregators get it out, they send it out to a distributor, which is distributors kind of local slash regional. And then the distributors typically push it down to the local wholesalers who sell it to the local retailers who finally sells it to you. Wow. And every single level takes a profit. Oof. And how much did you say the, you, what was the 3%? So, yeah. So once you got all of those different layers have taken their cut of the pie, once it gets down to the retail level, the difference between the cost of what it costs a retailer to purchase the food and when they can turn around and sell it to the consumer is, is approximately 3%. And that's, you know, this is not my numbers. This is something I'm getting from, you know, everybody I've talked to. Yeah. Uh, but, but basically that 3% has to be that you have to pay your lights, your, your power, your rent, your labor, every all of your costs of running a business has to come out of that 3% markup. 3%. And and so to me, as, as an entrepreneur and as a business owner and somebody who's been successful in my field, that's insane. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I would not operate a business on a 3% markup. And so what they do is they do really high volume. You know, grocery stores are basically designed, like, you've got these thirty to 50,000 square foot monsters, and they're designed to bring in a ton of people every day that are constantly shopping and constantly turning around. And so that 3% go, gets spread out over a large number of people over oh. a long period of time. And so that's how they kind of make their model work. But it's incredibly competitive. And, you know, there, there's not an opportunity, there's not a whole lot of opportunity for wiggle room because of that process, because of the traditional grocery model is we need to provide everything for everybody all the time. Gotcha. So if, if everybody gets everything all the time, again, it goes back to waste. You know, there's going to be too much of it. There's going to be some things that don't get sold and those get folded back into the food bank system and then redonated. And so you've got this entire system where this, this stuff just kind of moves around and it does its thing. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Because I always see a lot of, if you see a lot more local grocery stores, those tend to run out of business pretty fast. And uh, that's, from what I understand and from what I've heard from other people, that is a result of the trending of the really big box stores. So I'm not going to name any names, but you've got these box stores that have just these massive, huge warehouse style stores. Yes. And, and over the last 40 years or so, they've essentially driven a lot of the mom and pop stores out of business. Yeah. And, and so that kind of, and, and, and that really has created and has resulted in this, this food desert situation that we're dealing with because the, the smaller mom and pop stores, they can't survive in a low income area when somebody can just go over to you know, XYZ store and pick it up at a cheaper price because these, these cats can't afford to sell the food at the same low price as the big stores can. So you've got, again, you've got kind of the market (laughs) playing out and doing its thing. But if you break that model down and you start really looking at those components of what, of, of, of why this profit margin exists, you can start, you can start messing with it a little. And that's what we did. So, uh, first thing we did was we tackled, um, the big kind of monster, you know, like the 800 pound gorilla in the room is, is the packaging because along with the packaging comes the branding. So you've got individual uh, companies that are profiting off of the, the, the food that they're creating. And it also, you know, eliminates the aggregator. It eliminates the, you know, in large part, the distributor and the processor. And, you know, I mean, all of these different components of that markup kind of go away. And it also allows us to purchase food within an arbitrary distance of, of our, of our store. So mm-hmm. I, I set it at uh, 250 miles and, you know, I can change it any day. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, basically, okay, I, I've decided that we're going to purchase food within a 250 mile radius. Yeah. And we can do that in Northern Nevada because even though our area is uh, what's called subsistence farming, uh, you don't have a whole lot of grown food here. And we have a really short growing season and there's not a whole lot of farming community up here mm-hmm. comparatively. Uh, so, so you're not going, you, you, you can't feed northern nevada on the on the food grown in northern nevada yeah. you know exclusively it's it's you know I, I don't think it's possible 
But, however, <laughs> we, we live right next to Northern California. Yeah. And Northern California is, from, from some reports, like one-fifth of all of the food grown in the United States comes out of, uh, comes out of California. I mean, it's, it's a huge number. I don't know exactly the number, and don't quote me. But it, so, so, you, so if you set a 250-mile radius, that includes Northern California. Wow. And that's kind of our breadbasket. And we, we're fortunate enough to live right in their backyard, right across the pass. So by eliminating packaging, again, going back to the model and the, and the crafting of the model, we're including Northern California and Northern Nevada growing, and we're, we're limiting it to just that. And so we're creating a local food movement, just passively, just, just through the creation of the model of the store. We're, this is a local food movement. Ta-da! Nice. And, and then once you do that, and, and, and again, if you're, if you're crafting the store as being the, the vast majority of the store being shelf-stable dry product, you also don't have to have a massive amount of refrigeration or freezing capability. So you know how you go down the aisles of the typical grocery store and you've got like, like two or three aisles of frozen food and then you get two or three aisles of refrigerated food and then yeah. you get the whole back shelf and, yeah. and you got all of that. I mean, it's, there's so much power consumption. It's insane. Yeah. So, so we've got a, a, a small refrigerator that we're going to put in the back of our store and it's going to have, you know, some milk and some eggs and some things that, that require refrigeration, but it's not going to be the majority of the store. It's going to be, you know, kind of maybe 10% maybe 5%, you know, it's, it's a really small number. Yeah. And, and because of that, so one ref, uh, refrigeration costs a lot of in, in power consumption Two, it takes a lot of labor to run around and constantly refill and restock and change out and, and throw food away because it's expired or all of these different things that happen inside of a grocery store. It takes a huge amount of labor in order to, uh, in order to create that model. Mm-hmm. And if 85% of my short store is shelf stable product, guess what? I don't have to have a lot of labor. Mm-hmm. I, I can run the store on maybe one or two people. True. <laughs> and if I can run the store on one or two people, then that means my labor cost is way less. Mm-hmm. And again, adding on to that, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means that we can accept volunteers. Hey. So if we've got a grocery store manager and they're bringing in some volunteers, the volunteers are helping us out and, and, and helping us to move this stuff around then we can keep our costs of goods extremely low. That allows us to, to pass those savings on to customers. And, and I don't know if I've talked to you about the sliding scale component of the store. Uh, no. So it's pretty easy. Uh, you know, there, there is a certain kind of cost of individual products around our valley. You know, if you go to one store and you go to another store and you go to a third store, they're all going to be kind of in line with each other. You know, you're not going to have some, you know, one store charging two or three times as much for the same product because they're not going to sell it. People will figure that out and they're going to go someplace else. So what we're going to be doing is, is essentially pricing our goods along with, you know, in line with the communities. So, you know, every, every store is going to be approximately the same, but then we're doing something special. And again, we can only do this because we're a 501 C three. I can't overestimate the, the in- incredible power of having a nonprofit organization and being able to effectuate these changes through it because it, it really is a game changer. It really does make a huge difference. So what we've decided to do, and, and, and basically part of our model is that anybody that's making $32,000 or less a year in the community uh, is going to be able to shop at our store and we're going to sell them food for what it costs us to get it to them. Okay. So if it costs me a dollar for that pound of beans. And let's say, you know, cause you, you have to calculate your labor and you have to calculate your electricity and your rents and all of those things into that cost of goods. Yeah. So let's say it costs me a dollar 20 to get you to, to, to hand that over and sell that to you, you know, it, with everything included in there. Well, okay. I'll be selling it for $2 a pound to everybody else. But if you're making less than $32,000 a year, you're get it for a dollar 20. So we're literally turning the business into a logistics solution to be able to provide food for the inner city community at cost. Nice. And, and what's even better than that, once we crafted our model and created it and started sharing it around the community, we got a, a partnership with U.S. Foods. And U.S. Foods is the largest, to my knowledge, I think they're the largest or one of the largest distributors, food distributors in the United States. I don't know. And they gave us a nonprofit account and they've essentially taken their profit margin off as well which allows us to, to share this, this, the groceries back into the community for a huge discount. Yeah. You know, so, so basically we're, you know, the farmers are getting what they need to be able to make a living, which is great. And I, I wouldn't want to take that away, 
And U.S. Foods is, you know, obviously adding in their cost of transportation and storage and everything like that into it. And then we're doing the same thing. We're, you know, storage, transportation, anything that we need to do in order to get it to the customer, we're going to be doing those things. And the cost is going to reflect that and no more. Nice. So now you've got a situation and and, and I'm sure you've heard about the, the housing crisis in northern Nevada. How it's rising? How it's huge. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think we're number 32 in the country, 30, 32nd largest rents in the entire nation. Oh my gosh. Our, our little tiny town. <laughs> so, a little tiny 400, what, how did we say 400,000 people? I, I, God, I think Reno by itself is like 265, but yeah, it's, it's, it's around 450, 500,000 for the whole valley. And that's including like entire Washoe County. But yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got rents that are, I mean, just, just insane. And you know, this has been, you know, kind of a logical, uh, uh, fallout from, you know, major businesses coming in here and investing a lot of money. And it's just, it's, it's, it's what happens, you know, the city's growing and in a lot of cases we're growing so fast that we can't keep up, you know, so we've yeah. got greater percentages of homeless people. We've got, uh, you know, people that can't afford a one bedroom apartment. You've got entire families packed into a one bedroom. You got people living out of their cars yeah. uh, because, because this thing is just, it's, it's overwhelming us. So, you know, there's limited things that we can do about impacting the housing crisis, because housing is very expensive and, you know, you have to go through a lot of hoops to be able to create housing solutions. There's a huge disagreement about what type of solution to even put in place. And everybody's kind of fighting tooth and nail over this housing situation. Well, here's what we can do to contribute. If somebody's in the low income category and they're not making a whole lot of money and they're struggling to pay their rent, mm-hmm. we can at least give them a break on their food. And we can allow them to divert some of those scarce resources over to housing, over to medical costs, over to these other needs that really just kind of get left behind, you know, and, and, and it's overwhelming to some people. I talked to, uh, uh, I was at a town hall last year, uh, Mark Amaday's town hall. Um, and, and I talked to this one veteran who's, you know, she's probably, she was in her sixties and disabled service connected. Uh, uh, she had, I think an $800 a month rent wow. that she was paying for. And she was telling us, you know, the whole room, she was saying, well, next month my, my rent's getting jacked up to 900 bucks and I don't have that money and I'm going to be on the street. So, and that's heartbreaking. Yeah. It, and um, so what if we can make a difference? What yeah. if we can make any difference at all? Yeah. So. I really do appreciate that. That's something growing up as somebody who dealt with low income, was struggling, never really had a stable home to begin with and always accepting any help that we can get. That meant so much to us. Yeah. So knowing that you guys are doing that is is tremendous. I think that's one of the reasons why I support this organization so much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And, you know, and that's the thing is a lot of people are dealing with these problems. And, you know, people are proud. People don't want to accept handouts, you know. Mm-hmm. And by putting this grocery store in place, it allows people to be empowered to purchase their own food. It allows people to utilize their SNAP benefits. It allows people to, you know, really kind of have the choice to be able to determine what type of food they're getting. And it can be used in conjunction with pantries too. I mean, this isn't an either or situation. If you've got some help from the food pantries, if you're going over to, to pack provisions, for instance, and you're getting a box of food to help you out, then you can go down to the grocery store and you can just pick and choose what you need to round out your diet. You know, so you get some help from over here, you buy the extra stuff that you need, boom, you're in business. You know, and then you can start really kind of kind of pushing back against the health situation. You can start making choices about kind of who you want to be, kind of, you know, do I want to be a healthy person? Okay, great. I want to be a healthy person. Once you make that choice, then it's up to us as a community and a society to be able to provide the path and the tools and the empowerment and the capabilities to, to live that life, you know? Completely agree. Yeah. I feel like that'd be like a great way to end it. Ah, it's a fantastic way to end it. Yanalise, you've been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for walking us through, walking me through this process. No, thank you for letting me even be part of this process. That's fantastic. Awesome. All right. So uh, I guess we're wrapping this up. And thank you all for joining us on this adventure. Thank you. <laughs>